breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Thank you for taking a listen to this podcast and joining me. Uh, this is the place where we continue, regardless of what's happening in the world, to follow the jihad, to follow the jihadists and those who want to destroy Western civilization, who want to attack secular liberal democracies, who don't want to come into modernity, who advocate for political Islam and keep a quarter of the world's population led by medieval theocrats. Regardless of what they may say, the bottom line is, is without reform, political Islam will continue to dominate the Islamic communities as the ideology of Muslims. And there's a lot more diversity out there among Muslims. And by listening here, I think you're getting a little taste of some of the possibilities, I hope, for the American Muslim community and Western Muslim community. I think what we find here is also that sometimes some of the stimulus for change is the greatest in Muslim countries, Muslim-majority countries, where autocracy, kleptocracy, theocracy is the rule of the day. And those of us who live here in the West in freedom and liberty sometimes take things for granted. There's less motivation to change because it's not technically ruining our lives. It obviously is, because if you love your faith, you hate to see it run by dictators and autocrats. If you love this country, you hate to see it threatened by jihadists, by radicals, and you have to be leading the fight to destroy their ideas, to take the oxygen out of who they are, and that's what this program is. We have a lot to talk about this week. As always, we're going to touch on the parting shot from the Republican Party members of Congress and others, not just a partisan issue, but others to to name what the Chinese Communist Party is doing to the Uyghurs as a genocide. We'll also talk about a Pakistani cleric who stated what many of us have stated for some time is that according to Islam, according to the Quran, if there's one state that is recognized in our scripture, it is Israel. And we'll talk about that as controversial as it is. And then last, we'll talk about Iran. In his parting days, Secretary Pompeo made it clear that Al-Qaeda, remember Al-Qaeda is the Sunni Salafi jihadists, new home base, their new Qaeda, <laughs> as what Al-Qaeda means is base, is in Tehran, is in Iran. And why is that happening? What's happening? And what's the next step for Iran as the Biden administration takes over in a few days? First, a genocide in China. There is little doubt if you've been following what's happening in the Qingchang area of China that the Uyghurs are treated in a way well beyond terrorism by the state, well beyond oppression. And Republican members of the House Armed Services pressed the State Department this week to formally designate China's suppression of the Uyghur minority population as a genocide as the Washington Free Beacon and our good friend, good friends there, Adam Credo reported. Representative Jim Banks, Joe Wilson, say that the evidence indicates that the Chinese government is committing genocide 
by forcing the country's Uyghur Muslim minority into concentration camps and using them as slave labor. This is not new. This is SOP, Standard Operating Procedure for the Chinese government, and we've been trying, and so many, so many have been trying to lead an effort to have the West wake up to this, as many of our most powerful companies out of Silicon Valley and elsewhere continue to rake in millions and billions from the Chinese market. But that market is on the backs of the lives of populations like the Uyghur Muslims. As the House said, the CCP has engaged in a systematic and widespread campaign of violence, torture, detention, forced sterilization, and enslavement of the Uyghur Muslim population in China. They sent this letter stating this to the State Department. Its actions reflect an intent to destroy, whether in whole or in part, this entire population. Now, they thought that possibly this might be a parting designation by the Trump administration. We've not seen any response yet, but I do hope it's made because I'd like to see the Biden administration reverse that. Make them, it's easier not to make the argument than it would be to retract the argument. Brilliant. Truly brilliant. And you see the pressures coming from other companies talking about opening, normalizing relationship and not upping the ante. Well, listen, you can do what you want economically, but it should be designated a genocide. And as I talked to you in my frustration, as I pulled my hair out during the genocide in Syria by the Assad regime fueled by Russia and Iran against the Sunnis predominantly in Syria, with a systematic eradication of almost six to 700,000 and a depopulation, ethnic cleansing of almost 10 million displaced. Samantha Power at her perch at the UN refused to work to designate that a genocide. And she wrote the book on genocide. And now Joe Biden has congratulated her for her great service to the Obama administration by giving her even a more financially hefty responsibility in distributing the billions upon billions to groups around the world in the USAID. And I'm sure now we're going to continue to see a huge increase in the Islamist influence of where that monies go and the blind eye they will turn to those who radicalize. The non-militant Islamists will probably begin to see their heyday as she probably will say that it's just the militants that we're going to make sure don't get any money. And what is Hamas? Well, they take it off the terror list. I hope and pray not, but we'll wait and see. Back to China. President Joe Biden described, according to Credo, the genocidal situation while on the campaign trail and could instruct the State Department to pick up the deliberations if the Trump team fails to act. So that's key, right? It would be brilliant to be done before Trump leaves, harder to undo, but maybe this will fit right in with what the Biden administration wants to do to good cop, bad cop work with China. 
As Credo goes on, he says, Our next move must be to condemn the CCP's treatment of the Muslims in Xinjiang as genocide. Because that's the word that accurately describes what has been going on there, said Representative Banks of the Republican Study Committee chairman. If the world turns a blind eye to what's going on in Xinjiang, it will embolden the CCP to do it again somewhere else, and they will continue to do it. Don't make a mistake about that. group of senators from both parties introduced legislation late last year designating China's treatment of the Uyghurs as genocide. And Banks and Wilson are just the latest lawmakers to raise the issue again and press for greater action. And remember, the U.S. has only applied the label twice in history. Most recently in 16, when the Obama administration classified ISIS as committing genocide against Christians, Yazidis, and Shia Muslims in the Middle East, and the China case would spark a wholesale rethinking about the economic relationship of the U.S. with China. And then let's look at the data. As Security Advisor Robert O'Brien publicly accused China in 2019 of operating concentration camps that as many as one million Uyghurs are imprisoned in labor camps and forced to work in Chinese factories and elsewhere. There's more than enough evidence to make the designation. The New York Times itself, hardly any conservatism there, 2019 reported that the Communist Party of China declares to systematically target the Uyghur community. Government documents issued orders to break Uyghur lineage, break their roots and break their connection and break their origins. And then other human rights groups have also discussed this. I think it'd be great, and I think it's important that we continue as we do not lose focus on America's role in leadership in the world, in human rights. And most of the problems in the world do not get solved by military conflict. They will not be solved, as we proved in Iraq and Afghanistan, but need to be solved through pressure, through consistent pressure, through engagement, economic, morally, politically, and through the media. And remember, we have media assets from the Voice of America on that can continue to push these issues. Now, next, I want to touch on, you know, one of the first things that President-elect Biden has said he's going to do is revoke the Muslim ban. So I'm trying to get my head around he said that's on day one is coming the executive order to revoke that. I'm sorry, Mr. President-elect, but you can't revoke something that isn't in place. Now, according to reports in his first hours as President Joe Biden, this is from the AP, plans to take executive action to roll back some of the most controversial decisions of his predecessor and to address the raging coronavirus uh, pandemic. The opening salvo would herald a 10-day blitz of executive actions as Biden seeks to act swiftly to redirect the country in the wake of Trump's presidency without waiting for Congress. On Wednesday following his inauguration, Biden will end Trump's restriction on immigration to the U.S. from some Muslim-majority countries, move to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, and mandate mask-wearing on federal property. So, focusing on the Muslim travel part of this, now, 
you notice, even the AP says, ban from Muslim-majority countries. So if it was really a Muslim ban, even from minority countries, France or whatever, we wouldn't let, let Muslims come to the U.S. if there was truly a Muslim ban. There never was such a thing. And the, the, the fact that the media reports of this are not addressing the root cause. Look at the countries that were listed. Syria, Somalia, Iran. These are countries whose governments cannot be trusted. And when you do clearances, when you do vetting of people coming over to the United States, genocidal dictators, anarchical societies with no civil society, with, with significant degeneration of who they are and what's happening, do not have systems that allow us to vet these people appropriately. So it has nothing to do with their faith, has nothing to do with their ideas, specifically. But the reality is certain countries do not work well with us. And in actuality, for example, if you look at most of the terrorists in Syria, many of them were funneled from Russia, from Chechnya, where they actually shipped their militant jihadists into Syria, as reported by Michael Weiss repeatedly, into Syria in order to foment militancy, radicalization and give the Assad regime and the Russian enablers and Iranian enablers the green light to further destroy the Syrian Sunni population. That's why they saw hundreds if not thousands of Chechnyan fighters coming from Russia. And the point here is that this Muslim ban was never a Muslim ban. The executive order is simply going to open up travel to countries that were problematic and remain problematic, and we've not seen any significant improvement from those countries as far as the uh, veracity of what they're reporting to us. And certainly, listen, I'm not one to believe, especially as the son of immigrants who escaped persecution in Syria and came to the U.S. for freedom in any way that the U.S. should change who we are and turn off immigration for those who come from the worst countries of the world because they want to come here to be free. But that pause for a few years made sense. As we saw some, now again, some of them were homegrown radicals, be it in France or whatever, but there were also many that were taking advantage of the ease of, of travel and immigration and emigration across Europe and into the West in order to sow jihadism and join cells and commit acts of terror and radicalize our communities. So keep tabs. I'm going to continue to follow the story and see if the Biden administration, what exactly they're going to do and all of the verbiage you saw, um, Ilhan Omar uh, slapping herself on the back with uh, um, um, her advocacy for impeachment and other things and the way she was treated. And it was in many ways quite narcissistic. If you see, she has in the past week as she entered Congress again for her second term, the beginning of her second term into this Congress, she talked about what she did to change the halls of Congress, what she did to make America different. As if 
She's responsible for all that when, in fact, many of us in the Muslim community feel that she's actually, by leading with victimization, by leading with Islamism, by leading with support of Turkey and Qatar and the Muslim Brotherhood ideas and otherwise has actually been harmful for counter-radicalization, harmful for modernization, reform, and the security of America. She's been harmful for countering anti-Semitism, countering a lot of the beliefs that are part and parcel of the foundations of political Islam. Which brings us to some imams that are actually helpful. There is an imam this week, reported by also our good friend Noor Dahri, out of Britain, Pakistani Muslim, who writes frequently about reform and modern ideas. Dahri quoted, Mawlana Muhammad Khan Shirani, prominent religious figure, a central leader of the JUIF, JUI PEC official, ex-chairman of the Pakistani Ideology Council. He says he supports Israel's recognition. He said in Pashto, Israel's recognition is international issue and must be supported. And he said, I support recognition of Israel. He educated Muslims on the need to understand that the Quran and history prove to us that the land of Israel belongs only to the Jews. King David built the house of God in Jerusalem for the Israelis and not for the Palestinians. This is an amazing breakthrough. I've said this before. If you look, there's discussions of Israel, the land of the Jews, and the Quran. It never says that it should cease to be that. The Salafi interpretations of that are intentionally warped and revisionist. And the remarkability of it is that it's probably the only state, I think, I might be wrong, I might be missing something, but it's the only state discussed explicitly in the Quran. And there are certainly going to be a lot of theories about why did this come out from the imam first. Remember, I have to remind you that in discussions that we've had here on the Abraham Accords with the last four countries, Arab Sunni majority countries that have come out in favor of the Accords, that signed them, including the Emirates, Morocco, Sudan, Bahrain, more to come, certainly. Is Pakistan looking to join that uh, axis, if you will? Because Pakistan, as much as it has a huge Sharia state apparatus as part of its Islamic Republic, still is considered a strong ally of the United States, still wants to remain close to the orbit of Western countries. And while it has not played nice, obviously, from bin Laden to the Taliban and otherwise, perhaps it's trying to renew that as it sees the ship has sailed on the radicalization of the Muslim population through and via the Palestinian argument, if you will, and its propaganda. So, taking that out of the mix, I've told you about how, to me, what what made last year's accord so convincing was the fact that it was followed with clerics preaching from the pulpits about the reality of the need to to be equals with Jews, 
to condemn anti-Semitism, to condemn anyone who would not befriend the state of Israel. And they then followed that with not only political, with cultural and other economic engagement, but also with theological justification. And that theological justification has never, ever been part of peacemaking with Israel in the in, in the among the Arab countries. And that thus made it, I think, unbelievable in the past. You couldn't really believe that something was going to happen when the theology underpinning the anti-Semitism of the Islamists, the Wahhabis, and others was not countered. Now, in Pakistan, there's a huge populist movement of Islamists. They have a party, Jamaat Islamiyah. And perhaps it makes more sense to shift that populism by having some respected clerics. Mulana is a, a designation given to a respected theological leader, a cleric, if you will. So perhaps it's better for them to float that idea and see how it lands. Imran Khan is a weak, populist, spineless, if you will, sort of uh, a leader who one week is with the Islamists, helping them radicalize the Muslim population, and the next week is with the secular military, alternating back and forth. And who knows, maybe this imam did it on his own, saw what was coming, or had enough connections politically, economically, and otherwise, just uh, was uh, sort of thought by the establishment that it would be important to move this forward and take out the theological argument. The bottom line for our concern here is not the tribal politics of Pakistan, which, as Afghan, similar to Afghanistan, will continue to be mired in violence and militancy and and radicalization. The real important part for us is that the, the theology that he's using is correct, as far as I see it, in my interpretation, my understanding, is that this is where reform ideas should go. Now, now I'm, I'm not saying that we should follow Pakistani clerics on most or some or whatever it might be, but on this idea, I think the fact that these ideas are being floated when it comes to recognizing the state of Israel, it's important to take out the theological argument that somehow only Palestinians have a right to it, only Muslims do, that somehow the the, the city of Jerusalem is a Muslim city, it's not a Jewish city. Yes, it's shared by the faiths and has traditions in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. But right now, in the 21st century... Where does it sit? And I applauded the Trump administration for moving our embassy to Jerusalem and declaring it the capital of Israel as the state of Israel had a right to declare its own capital as long has been Jerusalem. So I think good news on the reform front there. And uh, we'll see what comes of it as we follow Pakistan. And I don't know, I'm not aware too much about this uh, Molana Muhammad Khan Shirani Maybe he has a sordid background, I don't know. But when it comes to these ideas and the ways he articulated them, it was pretty convincing. And a good sign. Last, you have to start to look at what's happening in Iran. As I've talked in the last few episodes, they have become a little more belligerent because they want to put the Biden administration on their heels. Uh, maximum pressure 
policy of the Pompeo Department, State Department, has worked. There were very, very few to any significant belligerences by Iran. Initially, there might have been, whether it was against Saudi Arabia back in 17, whether it was against or some threatening movements of their ships. But bottom line, the last year or two, they have been riling from the economic pressure. And I, I am surprised that the revolution has not had more openings, but we really don't know what's happening. And now they see the Biden administration's attempt to kick back, to kick back the nuclear deals, the JCPOA, and others as an opportunity for them to to come back to the table thumping their chests as being aggrieved. And what has happened? I think it's important to note that the State Department last week released information that Al-Qaeda's number two leader was killed in Iran, which was not only a good victory for another decapitation of a radical militant of that global Islamist anti-American organization, but it sort of shows where their primary base has been. We always knew when the al-Baghdadis and others vanished that it's very highly likely that they may have gone to Iran. Pompeo said al-Qaeda now has a new home base, the Islamic Republic of Iran, during a small gathering at the National Press Club. Al-Qaeda leader Abu al-Muhammad al-Masri on the FBI's most wanted list was eliminated in the streets of Tehran in August last year, confirming media reports at the time, but it's the first time this week that the U.S. government publicly acknowledged it. (laughs) Probably better that the Trump administration take credit for what it did than have the Biden administration try to say that it did it. Now the U.S. is offering $7 million for information leading to the identification of Al-Qaeda leader Abd Rahman al-Maghribi, who Pompeo said is also hiding in Iran. He's the head of Al-Qaeda's media arm and oversees the group's activities worldwide. And we've seen a number of the media arm leaders come and go in Al-Qaeda. But the bottom line is, is we see more and more evidence why Iran cannot be trusted. They say that they are not belligerent that nuclear weapons will not be used for suicide attacks, but yet they harbor the world's leaders of suicide attacks against the West, of a war declared back since 98 against America. And these are supposedly folks that they want to come to the, the, the Biden administration, the Obama administration went to the table with. And this didn't happen overnight. It didn't just happen in the last three years either. And by the way, just so you understand how deep this relationship is, the language in Iran is Farsi. Al-Qaeda leaders speak Arabic. The amount of cultural ramping up necessary for there to have radical terror networks based in Tehran, no different than Syria, right? In Syria, Arabic country, now a colony state, Uh, a a client state of Iran. That relationship took decades, started in the late 90s, ramped up as Bashar Assad took over, 
And slowly, as institutions grew, the generation grew that spoke both languages, Farsi and Arabic. And I think it's important also to realize that when it comes to radical militant terror leaders, that they got to be a quick study on Farsi and Arabic. The Arab Al-Qaeda learning Farsi and the Farsi Islamic Supreme Councils learning Arabic. Now, obviously, they've done it with the OIC cooperation of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation and some of their international conversations. But when it comes to terror groups, these are grassroots viral organizations that cannot succeed without neighborhood-to-neighborhood on-the-ground communication apparatuses that do not happen overnight. Pompeo said Iran decided to allow al-Qaeda to establish new operational headquarters on the condition that al-Qaeda operatives inside abide by the regime's rules. Since 2015, Iran has also given al-Qaeda leaders greater freedom of movement inside Iran. And now their leadership has been for long taking refuge in Iran, providing the terror group logistical support, travel documents, ID cards, and passports. Al-Qaeda has centralized its leadership inside Tehran. Iran is the new Afghanistan. Now, those might be saying that this is sort of the warmongering, that we're just, uh, this is not true. Well, prove it wrong. This is the threat to Israel. This is the threat to the West. A combination of Shia militancy of the Khomeinists and Sunni militancy of Al-Qaeda. And here, you know, listen, we will continue to confront that. I do think that their ability to get recruits has been decreased significantly with the de-radicalization or counter-radicalization that the Abraham Accords did and provided and all the other headway that's been made by the Trump administration. Well, talked about a lot today we'll be sure to follow up these stories and more on the program on the podcast thank you for joining me this week hope you're staying healthy out there as the numbers of covid infections continue to rise but we're making it through it the virus is being the virus and we are being america keeping you healthy keeping you strong and continuing to address not only one problem, but multiple problems on multiple fronts as we need to and we always will do regardless of what's going on. As long as I have a breath in me, I'll be targeting the ideas of political Islam, Islamism, and the radicalization process. Anxious to continue to grow on the platforms in 2021. God willing, I continue to have the platforms that we have won't get booted off like so many on Twitter. I've lost 20% of my following on Twitter in the last one month. Went down from almost 40,000 down to 32,000. That's absurd. Something is going on with the purge in social media. And uh, so many people have been talking about it, and I just echo a lot of their concerns about free speech, about whether these platforms are utilities types, or are they actually just simply should be treated just... As private companies, sure, they're private companies, they can decide, but when it's not done in a balanced way, when it's done in a way that 
serves as a political arm, then you have to start to think at how they influence elections, how they influence ideas, and how they influence movements, then they should declare themselves as a political party, declare themselves as a movement of some kind rather than simply an app or a website. It's much more than that. And I'm sure the Supreme Court, either this year or next, will start to hear cases on social media suppression of free speech and what the limits are. Will we change the Brandenburg versus Ohio standard on hate speech and what imminent violence means? That crosses a lot of the conversations we've had here on this program, which have included blasphemy laws in Middle Eastern countries and theocratic regimes and also laws in France and elsewhere that have allowed, and I think very appropriately, magazines like Charlie Hebdo, which have been targeted and assassinated, many of them, for their views, but they've been protected. They've been protected in their rights to do that because of the culture of Western society. Now, what's American culture on this? Yes, we protect religious freedom, but these issues are not unrelated to what social media is talking about today. This week I heard a CNN so-called analyst, last name Kayem, invoke Osama bin Laden, talking about President Trump, invoke Al-Qaeda, talking about the Republican Party. This is irresponsible. This is, I think that's hate speech, to label 74, 75 million people who voted for President Trump as a hate group. And the radicalization process, similar to what happens in Al-Qaeda, that is absolutely insane. insane, And I think shows you where American politics has gone today. The partisanship is hugely divided. We thought we were going to have signs that President Biden, as he took over on January 20, was going to bring more moderation, bridge building, but with what they're talking about on executive orders and the nods he's given to the progressives, I'm not sure if that's actually going to happen. Stay tuned. We'll be covering it here. Lots to cover on the front of security, reform, religious freedom. This is your faithful correspondent at podcast, Reform This. Zudi Jasser. Find me on Twitter at Dr. D-R-Z-U-H-D-I Jasser, J-A-S-S-E-L. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.